Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. In Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, we're going to springboard off of the writer of Ecclesiastes and some of the uh, remarkable uh, understandings and insights that he had, and yet at the same time reflect upon some of the struggles that he had with life, the struggles that he had with with the measuring the things that are done under the heaven. And as we bring it all together, I pray that uh, as we begin to celebrate this season of thanks, that God would grant us a particular perspective that is, that is valuable, that is beyond whatever this world has to offer, and that provides us with some insight as to what it is that you and I need to be thankful for in this season of thanksgiving. You know, one of the challenges of life and ministry is that you are aware of some of the things going on in people's lives as you see them filter into the worship center, and then you know that you're going to be speaking on Thanksgiving, and you wonder, how is this going to mesh? How does this match? I know the heaviness that they bring into the assembly. I know what they're dealing with right now, and I pray that at the end of our celebration today, you would grasp why this matters, and you would understand what it means to give thanks, and, and in many ways that you would put your hope, that you would claim the promises, and that you would understand that this world is passing, but we have a promise of a better world and a better day and a glorious future that is really the rock and the foundation of any kind of thanksgiving that we might have. But I do wrestle with that paradox of talking about thanksgiving and looking into people's faces. You might not see it in their countenance. You might not hear it in their voice. But you know the heaviness because you're aware of their story. And for you, I want you to know that the church is interceding on your behalf. The people are faithful in their prayers for the burdens that you're keeping, the burdens that you're carrying, the burdens that you're trying to to find some lightness to. And I want you to know that… There's a season that you find yourself in, and even in that season, there's a way and a means to give thanks, and I pray that you find that in this season of thanksgiving. If you have your Bibles open to chapter 3, follow along as I be reading at the first verse, a familiar passage to many, if not most of us. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under the heaven a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from all of his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and also has He put eternity into man's heart 
so that he cannot found out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil, for this is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that the people fear before Him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Pray with me, please. Father, again, we thank You for this time and opportunity to pause in our busy lives and in this busy week to consider what has been revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, consider what unfolds in this book of Ecclesiastes as the Koheleth unveils his struggles and his challenges and share some of his insight and disappointment on this life under the sun. I pray that through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you will take his words, you will take his story, that you'd allow it to resonate with us, and that you might in some way help us to, to find or to chart a course towards thankfulness, a course towards looking at the good things that you have done and the blessings that you've given in spite of the challenges and the difficulties in making sense out of life as we live it today. And I pray that as we look at this season that we are entering into, this season of thanks and thanksgiving, that you might help us to find a joy in our hearts, that you might help us to, to grasp the reality of, of the things that matter most. And in the many ways, Lord, as this unfolds in front of us and as we connect the dots, that we would clearly see that we're living in perilous times and yet clearly be able to look beyond those perilous times to see the sun, not the sun hidden behind clouds, the sun, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, our Savior and our King. And if nothing else, that you would give us a voice to give thanks and, and to offer praise for that. So encourage us and bless us and challenge us. Remind us of the things that matter most. And may our gaze and attention be upon our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we celebrate not just in the Word, but at the table. And may you receive all of the praise and the honor and the glory, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. As we reflect upon this book of Ecclesiastes again, it is the story of a man who is gathered together in assembly and is sharing all of his cogitations, all of his thoughts over the course of his life some of the mistakes that he has made, some of the challenges that he has, some of the disappointments and the discouragements that become very real to him, and every once in a while giving us a glimpse above the sun at those nuggets of, of virtue and value and, and promise and blessing that are so clear and lucid it is easy to lose them in light of the rest of the things that the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes is saying. In this particular text today, he is talking about God who is appointed every time and season, a God who owns responsibility that for, for everything that happens in this universe, <clears throat> not in a negative way, 
not in a sinful kind of way, but in a way in which His sovereignty is revealed even in the difficult and challenging times of life. See, what's happened as this unfolds before us is the writer is speaking and addressing some of the challenges that he's faced in life as he tries to wrestle with life under the sun, his role and his place, and in his disappointments, where's God and all of that? It's almost as if God is an afterthought to him on various pages of this book and in various areas of the treatise that unfolds before us. But if we understand what he's saying, there's a simple verse in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and, and then even into chapter 8 where he's saying, I have, I have decided and purposed in my life to examine and to evaluate. Those are kind of technical words. It's like he has a ledger. And on this ledger, he is writing pros and cons and good things and bad things, and he's, and he's trying to sort it out and figure it all out. He's a, he's a man who needed answers. He's a man who almost demanded answers. He's a man who's saying, why do things happen the way they happen? And as he goes through his life, he's challenged over and over over again by the way things are happening. And the truth of the matter is, as he wrestles through his thoughts, as he, as he constructs this ledger, as he's doing all of the math and he's using these, these logical equations to figure it all out, he says, I don't know. I don't know. It's elusive. I can't, I can't find it. The answers that I need are simply not there. And I suppose that in many ways in life, that is the challenge for many of us. The challenge of divine sovereignty, the belief that God is in control of absolutely everything, accompanied with that lament that says, then why, God? Maybe you can relate to that a little bit. Maybe you're in a season today that that resonates with you. You don't have to live very long under the sun before eventually you run into these seasons. So, what's the point after all? If you're really good, then why? If you're absolutely sovereign, how come? As this unfolds in various places in the book of Ecclesiastes, it unfolds in all of our hearts and in all of our minds when we wrestle with the realities of life, the promises of God, the character and nature of our God, the hope that we have in our Savior Jesus Christ, and then Maintain a grip on all of that in some of the darkest days that you've seen and know. That is something that we all wrestle with. That is the reality that all of us will have to face sooner or later. And if you've not given up this scheme of sorting things out and figuring it all out, if you've not given up this notion of comparing what you perceive to be the blessings of God with the heartaches of life to make sure that that God comes out on top, that there's more blessings than heartache, you've missed the whole purpose of life and much of what the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to communicate. As he wrestles through some of these difficult questions and as he time and time again asks the question about the vanity of life and the fleetingness of life and his inability to sort it all out, 
Every once in a while, he drops these nuggets in chapter 7, verse 14, and the day of prosperity be joyful. Today, if you know the blessing of God, have a joyful heart. Understand that that is from the hand of God. It's not circumstance. You didn't do that. You didn't create that. God and His goodness on this day has brought prosperity to your life. Be joyful. But then he says, in a paradoxical kind of way, and in the same time, in the same way, in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So when you aren't in a season of prosperity, but in a season of adversity, it's the same God. He doesn't change. His promises are true. He's faithful every day. His mercies and His grace and His compassion, they fail not. And yet sometimes it is tested in our lives. It is tested step after step after step after step. And the reason that it's tested is in, in a very lucid moment in the end of the chapter, He says, you know what? God made us upright we're the problem. We've sought out many schemes. There's not a good person among us. You see, that was part of the equation that he, that he didn't have quite figured out. He thought he was good. He thought he was worthy. He thought that he ought to be able to come up with these answers. He thought, if God is real, how come everything in life seems so, so fleeting? And in the midst of the acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God, he says, it's not his fault. We have sought out many schemes. Perhaps he's including himself in that. Again, schemes, accounting, ledgers, and, and, and diagrams. I'll give thanks to my God as long as the blessings of life outweigh the trials of life. Good luck with that throughout the seasons of life. It seems to me that the trials are always bigger than the blessings because it awakens us to a frailty. It awakens us to the vanity of life under the sun. It awakens us that none of us is guaranteed tomorrow, but we have been given this guarantee. There is a time and a season for everything under the heaven, and that's the problem and the challenge of divine sovereignty. Why this time and why this season? Perhaps some of it has to do with us. In fact, perhaps a lot of it has to do with us. And I think that he's giving us a glimpse or a glimmer into that when he talks about these schemes in life. You see, as a whole, the author's reflecting his inner struggles, the things and the dialogues that go on in, in his mind. Do you, do you ever have those conversations with yourself? For me, it's when I'm on a garden tractor raking or doing something with my hands. It's those times where you're just thinking and having these internal diagrams, and I'm glad they don't come out. You guys might be disappointed in that. Sometimes I'm talking about you in my head, right? So we all have these kinds of things in our heart and mind. We're just trying to sort it out. We're made that way. We're made to sort it out. As we're trying to sort it out, we have these debates with ourselves, and no one should be surprised that the perspectives in the book of Ecclesiastes include even contradictory ones. 
and I find myself there all of the time. God is good. I say that unequivocally. He is good. His mercies endure forever. His grace is abundant. And then on the opposite hand, I say, but why, God? That's what he's struggling with. He's struggling with the realities of life under the sun. He can't figure it out. So he says again in verse 15 of chapter 8, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and to drink and to be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. This is a blatant admission, uh, this time in which he is saying, hey, listen, how about the simple things? The simple things that are contained in in eating and drinking and and the simple pleasures of daily life. Remember when we went through that text and talked about the simple things? Boy, we miss those when our minds are so preoccupied with the questions that we cannot answer. The demands that will never be met as opposed to resting in the God who has a time and a season for everything under the heaven. Many ways he's saying, stop working so hard in your mind. And today, just enjoy the simple things. Just enjoy the simple blessings. Just, just enjoy the life that you have. I commend joy. Now, listen carefully. When he speaks of joy, he's not talking about happiness, at least not in the terms of the contemporary church. He's not talking about the joy that comes when, when I feel uplifted, when I feel good, when I listen to a song and my, my countenance, my, my mood changes, when someone promises me these glorious things that in my mind I know aren't true, but, but, I, but I cling to those promises thinking that if God is real, He's going to give them to me. The joy that He's speaking of is more dispositional in nature. And it's that dispositional joy and understanding of the things that unfold for us in this challenge of divine sovereignty that give us this sense of joy, not happiness, of joy, not not pain-free existence, of joy, not, not struggle, of joy that brings clarity to our minds. Did you know that even the unbeliever has been given those same gifts from God. There's a Reformed doctrine of common grace, where God restrains evil commonly. The Reformed doctrine of common grace, where where God gives good things. I remember a, a passage in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, I cause the rain on the just and the unjust. Not because you deserve it, it is common grace. God is benevolent, and, he, and He's kind, and He's given us this life under this sun to, to enjoy the simple things. As we look at all of that, there is a special kind of grace that we have in Christ that takes our joy to a whole different kind of level. So, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I remind you of ground that we've already tilled. And perhaps one of the most important verses, at least for me, in the context of Ecclesiastes, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the heaven. Now, my mind works different than other people's minds sometimes. And perhaps Ecclesiastes resonates with me because my mind is more like him. So tell me about those times and answer my questions as to why. Give me an insight as to what's happening 
in this season at this time? Why are some celebrating a time to be born and some grieving this time to die? Why, why is that, God? What, what rhyme and reason is before that? As I do my ledger, I look at this and I see, and remember, he struggles with this in his text. I see those things that aren't honoring to God and people who aren't honoring to God, and they seem to flourish. And then I see those godly people who seem to be under the crushing weight of difficult and challenging times. What gives God? Don't tell me you haven't had those conversations in your mind. Don't tell me you haven't been there. We've, 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 all, we've all been there. As he goes through these lit, liturgy of, of, of comparisons and, and, and speaks of a lot of things that we're not going to take the time, he asks the question, okay, so, so what gives here? What is really the gain from toiling every day under the sun? What is the point of this life? Maybe part of that point are in the numbers of 14 pairs of comparisons early in chapter 2. Maybe he's saying that God assigns times and purpose and meaning to all the events under life, but we live minute to minute, and sometimes you're basking in this time to be born. And sometimes you are grieving in this time to die. Sometimes your heart is crushed, and sometimes it's being healed by the Spirit of God. Sometimes you are weeping, and sometimes you are laughing, and sometimes you're doing both of those things back and forth and back and forth throughout the minutes of a day. Did you ever have those days? As he wrestles through all of this, and he's looking for a reason, something to make sense out of life under the sun. He reminds us that He, meaning God Himself, has made everything beautiful in its time. This isn't any comfort to those who are struggling with the challenge of divine sovereignty. Not at all. Because it's saying that whatever time that you find yourself in, whether it's a good time or a bad time, it is an ordained time by the God of the universe. This time and season are under His authority. And then he says in verse 11 that whatever he does is right and appropriate. And you say, not in my thinking, God. He wrestles through this rightness and appropriateness, this this perfectness in God's season and times. He says, God has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We have this sense of looking into the future, this sense of longing, perhaps like the psalm writer, how long, O Lord, in our seasons of grief and doubt, or perhaps like the disciples themselves, let's build a house and stay on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is a glorious place. I don't want to leave the mountain. No matter what, those times are appointed by God, and He has put eternity into our heart, this longing, this sense of who are we and where are we going and what is this all about? And yet, you cannot find what God has done from the beginning to the end. One of the hardest questions in counseling and ministry to people in crisis is the question, well, why is God doing this? I've learned in 
my life the hard way not to even attempt to answer that because I just don't know. What I can tell him, that there's a God in heaven who knows the times and the seasons. There's a God in heaven who has made everything right and beautiful and appropriate at the right time. And even though the inability to figure it out is a part of what is built into our sinful humanity, we must rest in this God who has made it clear that for everything, what do you suppose He means by everything? This is where it gets silly in seminaries and other places. Everything. That's good times and the bad times, the time to be born and the time to die. It is the sum total of everything that He lists in those first eight verses. So He says in verse 12, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Perhaps a perception or, or an attitude of submission and gratitude. Perhaps it's not our role to figure out life on this ledger of life, to sort it all out and come up with all of the answers, but just to make the most of every opportunity and whatever it is and whatever season that God has chosen or allowed in our lives in His sovereignty for this time also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in His toil, for this is God's gift to man. Life is short. Don't live your life lamenting about what might come tomorrow or in the future. Don't live your life trying to figure out those things that God has not declared or made known to you. Just understand that He is good, that He's in control, He makes everything beautiful, and the time that you're in today is a time in which you can be joyful. It's a time in which you can do good. It's a time in which you can look at whatever situation and circumstance and say, today, whether I am abased or abound, today, I will look at this time and season as a gift from God, and I'll make the most of it. I realize that's a tall order for most of us. I realize that I'm more like the writer than I am the preacher. The guy's got it all figured out, says, oh, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Don't, don't worry about it. The reality is we have these doubts, and we have these struggles, and we have these challenges. The biblical view of life is that it's designed to be lived in humility and obedience before God. Accepting the limitations that are placed on us as mortal beings and finding joy and satisfaction in the ordinary things of life. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's face it. If you had to live with me, you would realize that's not always my mantra. If you had to live with me, you would realize that I unapologetically believe that everything's going to be okay. But I'm also pretty, pretty free to say, but this stinks right now. It's life. 
how do we give thanks in these seasons? How do we find a way of, of living in humility and obedience before God? How do we accept the limitations of life? How do we accept the times and the seasons and find pleasure? Even in the toil, the heartaches, and the hard work of life under the sun. We've been studying on Wednesdays the Reformation. We've been dipping back in the history of 1517 and the years after that. In the life of Martin Luther, who we wouldn't agree with all of his theology, but what resonates as we go through that history and what resonates as as we contemplate the, the whole cause and the reason for that Reformation that expanded some 30 years, is that he was a man who needed to know. He needed to know, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why is it this way? What is the right way? And as he sorts this out, he was meticulous in his thinking. And fascinating enough, there came a point in time in the life of Martin Luther, who, who was an ordained priest in the Holy Catholic Church, not Roman Catholicism, but in the church. He was a servant of God. He was a local pastor who was trying to get it right and, and teach the flock and, and to live the right kind of life. But he came to a place in time in his life where he became an angry soul. He was angry because he looked at the passages of Scripture that talk about the goodness of God. He looked at the passages of Scripture that talked about the grace of God. He looked at the passages of Scripture wrestling with the salvation that comes in Christ alone. And then he looked at the requirements and what God requires of those for salvation and, and righteousness and godliness. And he came to the conclusion that God was asking him to do something, to do all of these works-related things for salvation that he couldn't possibly do. There weren't enough hours in the day. He became so obsessed that he was told by others to stay out of the confessional booth. You're driving us crazy. You're looking for things to confess. You're, you're obsessing over things that you can never really understand. But here was his issue. He was in angst. He was in agony. Because if, in fact, it was my job to please a holy and righteous God, he looked in the mirror and said, I can't do that. And he became angry at God who was asking him to do something that he couldn't do. And then he started studying the book of Romans. And in his study of the book of Romans, there are two verses that leapt from the page and left a mark in Martin Luther's life. Here are the verses. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. As he began to study this book of Romans, it became more and more real to him in this life under the sun that it is the one who by faith is righteous in Christ alone, 
not the one who works and mitigates the good times and the bad days of life and sorts it all out. He was crushed in his spirit, yet in a spirit of humility, he came to the conclusion, there's nothing I can do to gain the favor of God. But he's made a way, and it's in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. It's not all these hoops that he'd been jumping through. It's not all these hoops that he'd been telling other people to jump through. He was beginning to learn that the very requirements of righteousness were impossible for anybody. And no matter how good you were, God owed you no favor of grace. And yet in his moment of greatest weakness, it was his greatest triumph that developed over those next 20-plus years of his life where he realized in a freeing, fresh kind of way, it's not up to me. God has made a way to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He made an interesting statement when this all kind of settled into his mind. He didn't use the terminology that we use in evangelicalism today, but, but it was similar. He said, I, I feel like I've been born anew, born, born again. I finally, I finally get it. This righteousness is not by my works. It is through Christ alone. And it began to shape and form in his mind into what became those solas of the Reformation. The one who by faith is righteous shall live, and it is only by faith. I don't deserve anything. No answers. No ledger that tips the good things in my life and balances out the bad things in my life. Just Christ alone, that's all, that's all I need. It began the Reformation as we know it, and is the gospel that we preach and teach today, at least in most churches. There are some churches who fall prey to the trap of the writer of Ecclesiastes, and they're trying to figure it all out. They're promising a best life now. It's trying to keep us happy, trying to keep us stimulated and puffed up, trying to keep us contemporary. They're trying to, trying to keep us on this high, and sometimes the greatest achievements in spiritual faith are not on the mountaintop, but in the darkest valley. But we don't like to deal with that. You know why? Because we refuse to believe that God is in charge of the times and the seasons of my life, and yet it's black and white in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to make this work somehow. So you come to church, and some of you, maybe I'll prick your conscience, maybe just bug you this morning, whatever, say, why are we singing these old hymns, Pastor? I just need to be built up. Is there any other way to be built up than to tell you that your hope was in the gospel of Jesus Christ and everything's going to be okay? You can't do this, but God has done it through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's all you need. And if God has done it through His Son, Jesus Christ, He has every right to order the seasons in my life. If He has rescued me, who am I to think that He owes me an explanation? He deserves, or I deserve that He balances this, this ledger I deserve that the good outweighs the bad in my… Who am I? 
a real spirit of humility, and he developed Martin Luther, this, this doctrine of humility. The real spirit of humility is seen in the crucified Christ. He realized, I need to die to self, and the good news of the gospel is in Christ. alone. Maybe part of this, including the reconciliation of the things that we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, is to correct all of our hearts and minds from this notion that somehow you deserve more good than bad. God owes you that. And even though you've reconciled with the reality that bad happens, you still hold on to the fact that He owes you an explanation. He's the God of the universe. He owes you nothing. You owe Him everything in Christ alone. And everything sometimes comes in adversity, in those seasons. And I have no other way in various times and seasons of life, to find a place of joy than to begin with my salvation, a wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of death. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. This is painful, and this is harsh, and I don't like where I am, but I know better today is coming. And the circumstances of life must pale in comparison to the glory of our King. But it doesn't happen until you understand the good news of the gospel and let go of your demand to know the answers and your cry, God, justify yourself. Because His response is, I justified you by faith alone. It brings a humility to life. It was really hard for Martin Luther because he wasn't the humble type, pretty bombastic, pretty sharp with his tongue, but a humility that it is in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, and that is where the joy comes to the glory of God alone. Perhaps that's why we come to this table every month. It is so easy to slip into the mindset of the Koheleth and Ecclesiastes, the ledger mindset, the figuring out kind of mindset, the mental torment trying to make sense out of that which is absolutely senseless. Listen carefully. It doesn't matter what songs we sing this morning and whether or not your toe taps, you know you are rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you know? that it doesn't matter if red or blue wins on Tuesday, our King is on the throne. Stop trying to find your joy and happiness and fulfillment and your thanksgiving and the circumstances of life that is found in your King, and He has blessed you with every good and perfect thing that comes from the Father through our Son, Jesus Christ, and it doesn't matter what the day is. There's a reason to find joy. Even in the worst of seasons, as Job knew, 
Oh, he slays me. What, what else do I have? How can, how, can I not, how can I not trust him? How can I not believe that he is good? As we wrestle in this season of thanks and balance the realities of life, there's much to be thankful for. So, in verse 14 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, as he brings this section to a completion, the Kohelet says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that the people fear before Him. So, we stand in His presence with reverence and awe that there is a time and a season for everything under the heaven, and there's the gospel of good news that sets men free, and we are reminded of that day in our lives. I'll never forget that day in my life where I came to know Christ as Savior. My theology was a little rough back then, but something happened. My circumstances didn't change. My mind wasn't cleared up entirely, but I experienced the grace of God in Christ alone. Do you know Him? And if you do, the church is driven underground with threat of persecution. We will gather in the basement and say, isn't God good? Because He's rescued us and made us precious promises, and if nothing else, we can be thankful. Some of you read that text as a straitjacket. Then, then I can't control anything in my life, and I say, exactly. But you can be introduced to the one who does, who knows the times and the seasons and has it all ordered for His glory and your good, and that is found in the gospel alone. So as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember the Lord's death till He come. What a fitting way to begin this season. God has done it. We must purpose to find joy. And that's where the glorious nature of the gospel hits the hard road of life. And isn't that our challenge in a season of thanksgiving? How do we balance the two? Until you reach that stage of angst that teaches you that it is impossible for you to know this God without Him reaching into your soul to the gospel of Christ alone, you'll never get it straight. Somehow, He took this welfare kid with all of his flaws said, watch what I do. And it's a reason to give thanks. I pray that you have that reason. And I pray that as we start this season, no matter where you are, you might know that God is good. Maybe not in the way or in the manner you think of His goodness. But in the fact that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but because of Jesus, you are now alive unto God through Jesus Christ. Isn't it funny? 
There's a reason that we were to come often to remember what He did for us. There's your choice. You can come here and remember, or you can get stuck in Ecclesiastes. I pray that your spirit is free to celebrate with the saints. What are we celebrating, Pastor Jim? Not circumstances, not the outcome of an election, not the promise of our best life now, not the removal of our pain, not the quietness in our heart, not the resolution of the questions in our mind. No. The security that we have and knowing that Christ died for us according to the Scripture was buried and raised again the third day and for whatever reason chose me before the foundation of the earth. Stop fussing about the theology and start singing to the top of your lungs that God is good. How great is our God that He rescued us. That is the basis for the celebration of the saints. Are you finding joy? Are you filled with questions? Have you learned that whatever God does endures forever? You know what it means to fear God? To hold Him in the highest adoration, believing that He's good all the time. That comes in the gospel of Christ. Father, in an increasingly pagan age, the valley of the shadow of death, the burdens of life tied to times and seasons, I pray that you would make a place for joy, that you would teach us how to be thankful we would rest in quiet humility, the grace, the grace of God in Christ alone. May it be the foundation, the very essence of this season of thanksgiving. May it fix our eyes on our Savior, not circumstances of life, country, times and seasons. And then indeed, you would fill us with your strength that we might find endurance in life's most challenging times, patience in our circumstances, joyful. Remind us that it is only because you have rescued us through your Son, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory forever and forever and forever. We close our service with our benevolence offering and a final hymn. Teach us to count our blessings. Be reminded of the things that matter most and even thankful for this time that we as your people could gather in this place on this occasion to get perspective. We thank you that you're a God in control of the times and the seasons. Now quiet our hearts. Create a joy in our hearts.
teach us to count our blessings in this season of thanksgiving, we ask in Jesus' name.